0: Do you hesitate to say anything about your faith in public conversations, even and especially those on social media? That's precisely where such witness is needed. But witness is needed, a robust witness, always and everywhere, in a culture where so many people are in such dire need of what they think is happiness or hope or peace, but what they don't know is truly God. I'm Sheila Minas. You're in the forum. often hear the separation of church and state and and held up as a claim, and a rather defiant one, that religion has no place in public life whatsoever. That's the establishment clause. But you don't hear the rest of the First Amendment protection that declares government will not prohibit the free exercise of religion. What about that? to focus squarely on the role and importance of religion in public life is Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Hahn's founder and president of the St. Paul Center, doing critically important work in catechesis and evangelization and engagement of top issues of the day. He's author of over 20 books, including his latest, It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. Dr. Han, welcome.
1: It's wonderful to be with you, Sheila. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Oh, it's always wonderful to be with you and, and uh, talk about anything and in all your books when they come out. And this is so important. This is a very compelling book. Dr. Hahn, it is, it is a very important book that I urge everyone who hears this or reads about it when I, I review it and write about it, uh, gets, gets a copy of this, maybe gets two and gives it to somebody else because the future of civilization in our current moment, especially, really depends on true religion. Scott, let's start right there. In the subtitle, depends, the future of civilization depends on true religion. Start with why that's even in the subtitle, true religion and not just religion.
1: Well, I think you've already suggested the answer by pointing out the constitutional right that we have, freedom of religion. But in the last 50 years or so, the forces of secularism have been such that, you know, as much as Christians have been free to use our freedom of religion to proclaim the truth, it's becoming increasingly clear that what secularists mean is freedom from religion, that is to expel religion from the public square and from any social discourse. And I think we've got to wake up and kind of (laughs) smell the coffee because it's really different now than it was when I was born some 63 years ago. Religion, according to modern secularists, is not only irrelevant to public life, to modern justice, and to law, it even poses a threat to our national life. And that's become increasingly clear. And I must press pause for just a moment and point out that just as you and I discussed a book I wrote last year called Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body, which came out immediately after COVID. So likewise, this book came out immediately after a rather uh, controversial election in November. Oh, to put it mildly. And so, yeah. And we're still really, we're still reeling from that. You know, we mm-hmm. all kind of hoped that stepping into the new year 2020 would be left behind, but as I told my family, 2020's a decade, not just a year. And so we're in the midst of social upheaval where religion is going to be scrutinized. And I think what we've got to recognize is that, you know, besides responding with prudence and courage to the crises that we face in the world, in our nation, after the election, but also in our church, we have to do more than just plant the fall crops so that we have food for our families in the winter. What I mean is we need more than a short-term strategy so that we have strategic replies to the objections that come our way about the dangers of bringing religion out into the public square and social discourse. Uh, This book that I've written called, with uh, a dear friend, uh, Brandon McGinley, entitled It Is Right and Just, you know, obviously we're lifting the line from the liturgy where it is right and just to give him thanks and praise, it is our duty and our salvation. But what I'm doing in the subtitle, why the future of civilization depends on true religion, is I am planting not this false crop so much as planting a forest that you and I will probably not live long enough to see. You know, a forest might really take shape in 30 or 40 years so that our kids and our grandkids might have wood for their houses, their furniture and their fireplace. But the fact is, we've got to think long term, because we're not just American Catholics, we're American Catholics. And the church doesn't think in terms of election cycles. We don't think simply in terms of the, the secular accommodation for religion granted by American legal tradition. We think in terms of religion as it was in classical antiquity, and as it is revealed by Christ. So we've got to think short term and long term. We've got to think like patriotic Americans who still want to love and protect our country, but we also got to think and live like Catholics who recognize that we have dual citizenship. As Paul reminds the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, not just among the Philippian citizens who are your next door neighbors. And that's true for us every bit as much as it was back in the first century. So true religion you know, is something that we've got to understand. First, by clarifying what we mean by religion, which is part one of the book, where I point out that religion is not simply a matter of personal preference. It's not simply a matter of private custom. Uh, religion is a matter of fundamental justice, not only in my relationship with God or in yours, but as the Catechism makes it clear in, in Article 2105, the duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one Church of Christ, close quote. And so I begin by pointing out that, you know, for St. Thomas Aquinas, justice is the chief virtue among all of the moral virtues, because you're focusing not only on your own private good, but of a personal well-being of others, but of the different kinds of justice. We have transactional justice that is called distributive. We also have, you know, a, a higher form of justice, equity towards others, which is social justice. But even Cicero and Seneca recognized that the highest form of justice is what we owe to heaven, to divinity, for the existence we have, for the life that we share, and for much else. And so religion as expressed in sacrifice was something that the pagans understood as a matter of public virtue. And as Aquinas says, this means that religion is the virtue of virtues, the highest form of justice, which is the chief virtue among humans. And a virtue is not just, you know, something that we declare to be good. Virtues are to the soul, what muscles are to the body. Virtues are to a society you know, what a good economy might be for the material well-being, because the spiritual reality of community life is not less important, but far more than how much money we have or what the employment rate might be. Everything that I've mentioned is important, but what we've done is we've sort of majored on the minors, because that's what secularism has conditioned us to do, to think Mm -hmm. that only matters of, you know, economic wealth, political power, military, victory, these are the only things that really matter because secularism comes from secular, which is really pointing to the here and now, and that's all, that what you see is all you get, whereas we would affirm that what you see is an important part of what we get, but there's a much, much more important part, and so what I do in the second part of the book is to show that secularism, which has redefined religion as a private relativistic matter, is itself a religion. And it's an idolatrous religion drawing from the prophets of ancient Israel. Whenever you absolutize relative values like money and power, and you relativize the absolute truth of God and the moral law, that is just another form of Baal worship, if you will, because you're really out for your own personal gain. And the final section really gets to your question, and that is, what difference does true religion make? And the last five chapters I focus on how true religion has the is really the only power source for forming civilizations rooted in justice. And the Catholic faith has this civilization forming power that I've been kind of drawing out by way of implication in many of my books: A Father Who Keeps His Promises, Swear to God, even The Lamb's Supper, perhaps most of all. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book called The Kingdom of God as Liturgical Empire, where I'm looking at the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament. But the idea that civilization requires religion, true religion for truth and justice, and that this religion starts in the soul, the heart. It goes not just in my soul, which is invisible, but to my body, but not just to me, but to my spouse, to our family, to our neighborhood, to our town, and and where does it stop? Do I want holiness just for myself and not for Kimberly? Well, no. Do I want it just for my wife, but not my kids? Obviously not. Do I want it just for my family, but not the neighborhood? Or for the neighborhood, but not the town of Steubenville? Or for the town, but not the state of Ohio? Or just for the state, but not the country? Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. He didn't say if you're living in the right point of history where it looks likely for that to happen. We've got our marching orders, and ours is to, you know, obey, or as Alfred Lord Tennyson would say, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do and die. And to live for the Great Commission is what we're here on the planet for, and to explain it away or to justify our inaction makes this the great omission. <laughs> it's, a, it's a serious injustice that we not only commit against our Lord, who is the King of Kings, and not just our high priest in heaven. It is also an injustice that we commit against our fellow humans who hmm. need the truth to be set free. And you can tell by now, <laughs> I could go on and on. But this has been burning inside of me for a long yeah. time. And working with Brandon McGinley has just been almost too much fun.
0: Well, and, and Dr. Han, again, as you said, when you were on my show, and, we, and, and that was when uh, your last book came out, and I, I talked to you about how remarkable it is time and again when an author will come out with a book, which we all know takes a very long time to get done and published. you know, varying degrees of time, but takes quite a while. And then it winds up coming out at precisely the right time. Of course, the Lord of of all history knows when that is needed. But it's just remarkable how something happens, erupts in whether globally or or nationally in our public life that really um, that book really speaks to and is needed for, such is the case with this book in this time, because because of what politics has done over time, because of what the pandemic and politics together and, you know, the perfect storm there. But there's so much in what you said already, besides the book itself, all flagged and marked as it is. That I really want to come back to one one of the things is I thought as soon as you said we, we aren 't just to be American Catholics we 're to be American Catholics, and then also who was it was it I think it was the late great father Richard John Newhouse or Archbishop Charles Shapew, one of them I think one of the two of them said. Uh, Are we American Catholics or Catholic Americans? The adjective defines. And I always remembered that is when I hear when I hear people in public uh, talk about that. And especially now when the three branches of government are going to be Head, headed up by or led by self proclaimed Catholics, you know Chief Justice Roberts on the Supreme Court is Catholic, Joe Biden is Catholic, Nancy Pelosi is Catholic and for those who wonder well why is she what do, what do you mean by that there 's a Senate as well well, because a lot of people don 't realize that the line of succession to the presidency goes first president, then Vice President, then Speaker of the house so yep. to to that point dr Han, is it is is that the reason? Why uh, religion being so so important to civilization now and going forward, as you say, into the future generations to come, near and far off into the future, is it that the reason it is to be extinguished or at least uh, under the thumb of the powers that be and not lived in public life, or is it a lack of understanding that it is so important, as you, you as you note early in the book, like by page two, what Marx saw in religion? that the religious impulse, you say, is a roadblock to revolution. So it just is something that is an opium, that that, that is a balm to people who believe in it, but it's got to be uh, gotten rid of or pushed aside because it's going to impede the revolution.
1: Well, you know, once you have driven God out of the consciousness, as I point out in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's famous speech uh, for the Templeton Award, Men Have Forgotten God, you know, he grew up in Marxist, communist Russia, and he would hear the elders in his town talk about the way it used to be when the, the motherland was, you know, Russian Orthodox, Christian to the core, to the max. What has happened? Well, men have forgotten God. Well, it isn't like, you know, oh, I forgot, you know, uh, I forgot to pay my bills last week. No, it's a deliberate attempt to drive out of the public discourse, out of the minds of people and it had been going on since the Enlightenment. But I, I think it's important to accentuate what you just emphasized, and that is the role that we have as Catholics in America. Whether you're the president, the speaker of the house, or the chief justice, you know, I'm reminded of what Peter reminds us in his epistle, the judgment begins with the household of faith. You can find in the ancient Israel's prophets, oracles that were delivered against the nations, scholars call those OAM oracles against the nations, that they constitute less than 30% of the prophetic uh, condemnation against Edom, Moab, Egypt, well over 70 to 80% of what the prophets did was to target Israel, the people of God, the rulers, the leaders, you know, and so not only did this book come out in a timely way after the election, but the St. Paul Center has a publishing arm, Emmaus Road, as you know, And we released another book just days before my book came out by a dear friend, Ralph Martin, who wrote A Church in Crisis, which is sounding the trumpet, but it's also sounding a note of hope so it's not just an alarming uh, description of the corruption and the confusion within the church. But I would say this, that we can point our fingers at other countries, we can point our fingers at secular atheist Americans, But in a certain sense, judgment begins with the household of faith. And you can see how it was in ancient Israel, where for a variety of reasons, ignorance, willfulness, a self-willed blindness, you know, people don't like the demands of the covenant because you've got to live in the presence of God, quorum deo. And so if you want to live on your own terms, you're going to find a way to peripheralize religion, the truth of the covenant, you're also going to denounce those who denounce the infidelities that are especially committed by the members of the household of God. And so, you know, this didn't start four years ago. This didn't start 40 years ago. This didn't simply start last century or back with Marx in the 19th century. This started centuries ago, you know, with the protest of the reformers who really deformed the church, through their protests. And then in the Enlightenment as well, the French Revolution slogan, liberty, fraternity, and equality, was really a way of implicitly denouncing or rejecting well, liberty as opposed to authority, uh, fraternity as opposed to paternity or motherhood, and equality as opposed to hierarchy and tradition. And so we have weaponized certain virtues against other ones that are just burdensome or inconvenient. And in a certain sense, you don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're undoing. You know, you don't know, but the real problem is you don't know what you don't know. And so that's why I highlight that famous play by the wonderful star in uh, the Minnesota Vikings team, Jim Marshall. Uh, Back in October of 1964, he picked up a fumble from Billy Billy Kilmer of uh, the 49ers, and he ran it back into the end zone. But without knowing it, he ran the wrong way and scored a safety for the opposition. And, you know, we we call it the wrong way run. And even though Jim Marshall holds like four or five records in the NFL, he's not yet in the Hall of Fame because of that. And it's important to recognize that we act on on the basis of what we think is true. And so if what we think is true is either wrong or just half true, Ideas have consequences. Mm -hmm. Good ones have great consequences. Bad ideas, you know, have disastrous consequences. You know, the road to hell is paved with intentions, good intentions. So we might be sincere and still be sincerely wrong and bequeath to our kids and our grandkids a really lethal legacy, which is, I think, what secularism is doing. We're looking at, you know, new forms of a devangelization. Which is, I mean, this is not an exaggeration at all. It really is subverting the tradition of faith and morals for our grandkids. And as you know, we, when we last talked, I think we had 19 grandkids. Number 20 is on the way.
0: Oh, praise God.
1: You know, we also have, as you know, like as you have a son who's a priest, you know, Deacon Jeremiah is going to be ordained in May, Lord willing. And then Joseph is going to be ordained the following year as a deacon. And we just had an event last week in Texas. With 150 priests, and I spoke on this book. It is right and just, and to say it was bracing was an understatement. I mean, it was uh, it, it was an empowerment, but it was also like an alarm clock. You reach for Where can where, where can I find it? I'm going to turn it off. But you know, it really is an alarming uh, fact that we have basically been complicit with the secularists for practically centuries, at least generations in allowing true religion to be suppressed or to simply be reduced to, well, you know, what do you want on your pizza? I like pepperoni, you like pineapple, you know, I'm a Catholic, you know, you are whatever. And Christ is the King of Kings. And he said, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. And even Paul in writing to the Romans at the time of Nero in chapter 13, verse four, reminds the Romans to remind the emperor and all of the other civil authorities that they are not getting their power from their parents or from an electorate; all power comes from God, and they are God's servants. In verse four, and the word for servant is diakonos, where we get the word deacon. You know, and so to recognize that they're going to be judged by God on the basis of what they did or failed to do. You know, we don't do our rulers a service when we allow them to suppress the truth of God, of the moral law, and of everlasting of everlasting consequences of judgment. And and again, I could go on and on, but I just, I feel as though this is not just bubbles coming up to the surface, but it feels within my my heart, more like a fire, like a lava that we have got to, we're not going to succeed in transforming our country in my lifetime at least, and certainly not by you know a healthy string of compromises. So if we're not going to win through compromise, and we're going to lose. I mean, let's find ways to lose more slowly than we have in the last few weeks. Yeah. But at the same time, if we're going to lose, then let's lose with our heads held high without compromising. So at least we can look the Lord Jesus in the eye and say, you know, ours was to do or die. You know? And so we really strove to be faithful for ourselves, our families, our cities, our states, and our nation and others too. It's just so that's why we have such a limited time on planet Earth.
0: It, it, and it seems to me, Dr. Hahn, this is so urgent, This and, and, and it's also so compelling. There are so many people, in, and among them certainly younger generations, whether it's Xers, well, they're not as young as the, the Millennials, or the Gen Zers now coming uh, coming into college life. On campuses where they may even be practicing Catholics and yet because of their young age there are some things that they just accept that are have been normalized in our culture out there by the cultural power brokers if you will that they even though it's their Catholic faith that, they, that the, the magisterium has always taught the faith has always taught the church has always taught certain things about life and, and ordering life into your book religion is ordered to the faith to the truth truth in order to Christ well some things that aren't ordered as such as you just stated in the book they accept just because that is what is but then other things clearly they'll they'll practice the faith uh, regular mass attendance regular sacramental uh, reception and yet they will accept that so we are so askew out there today that when you write you know ordering our our religion is ordered to the faith ordered to the truth to Christ it's part of what it means to be human you said but it's also meant to be directed by and to Jesus and not to our wh- by or to our whims we can't escape you right ordering our lives around a higher power and yet so many people seem to the question is whether we choose the true and living god or an idol so that we not only are in the dictatorship of relativism that Pope Benedict, now emeritus, wrote of and warned of so many years ago now, we are deep in the dictatorship of relativism, as you just put put it so clearly, Dr. Hunt, we, our own people are part of this. I see this yeah, in really. social media commentary. I just saw some comments last night and I thought, oh no, please don't keep saying this. Things they're saying about the authenticity or lack thereof of Vatican II. That was a missionary council sending us out to do just what you're saying. I mean, I, I don't wanna be the one to talk so much. I wanna just hear you. But but this is a, one a part of our battle, not just the culture, not just the power brokers of culture and politics and law and the entertainment media, which forms so many people's opinions, and, and, and the news media, which forms so many opinions, but with our own people in the pews or not making it to the pews anymore. Sorry. Just, uh, that's why your book is so important, and that's, that's part of our uphill battle. You say secularism is idolatry, and how do we undo that? It, because it's very important, as you've got, as you said, the second half of the book, it is, it's, it's also unjust. So all nice. these things are things we are battles right now. And I hate to use, you know, uh, that terminology, but that's what it is. Well, of
1: course it is. Yeah. And we have to get used to that terminology because though we're a family, we're also fighting on a battlefield, mm-hmm. not only for my life and yours, but for our children and our grand and our neighbors as well. You mentioned Vatican too. And, you know, it, it's often overlooked that, you know, the laity were, were mobilized to sanctify the temporal order as we read not to sanitize or simply to naturalize, but to supernaturalize. And the quote in the Catechism, Article 2105 from Vatican II is, by constantly evangelizing people, the Church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, laws and structures of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each man the love of the true and the good. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion, which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church, and ultimately leads us straight to the kingship of Christ, not just over the Church, but over societies. So again, not just the High Priest, and we wonder, well, what happened, you know, especially as you brought up Generation Zers, you know, and when we look at the Gen Zers, I think they would probably find themselves confused, if not bewildered by what I'm saying, and yet We've got to say it to kind of wake them up and to wake ourselves up. you know, I, I mentioned in the in the book this this episode that happened when these two bank robbers entered a, a, a bank back in 1973. They took four hostages into the bank vault, and the confrontation lasted five days until finally the tear gas drove them out. And in the court trial, what was so startling was that the the four hostages, basically spoke out for the bank robbers who had threatened their lives and this is how the Stockholm syndrome entered our vocabulary because when you internalize the values of your captors in order to kind of it's a mechanism whereby you cope you know mm-hmm. but in the process you don't even realize that you have been transformed you know by the experience even more than your eyes were burning through the tear gas and I think there's a spiritual Stockholm syndrome that has taken hold not only in this Generation Z, but I mean going back several generations, at least to 1960, when JFK made it clear to the Baptist ministers in the election campaign down in Dallas, he, he basically promised that he would check his hat and his faith at the door and not allow it to enter into his own presidential you know, decision-making. And you know, there is a place and a time for not making the president out to be a preacher, to be sure, but for him to privatize and relativize his own convictions regarding the sacred mystery and destiny of every single one of his fellow citizens is no favor to America, even if some secularized Americans might welcome it. But again, you know, I, I go back to an understanding of history that we've got to find in the Word of God, especially through the prophets, because, you know, as Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, once said, if God doesn't punish the United States of America, he will owe Sodom and Gomorrah a personal apology. Because of all the goods that we do, you know, I would say that statement is not, you know, false. We do a lot of good, but we have become the exporters of a whole lot of different kinds of evil. And so we want to stand up for our country. We want to speak out for the good. But at the same time, We want to recognize that in Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel didn't just confess the sins of the sinful Israelites, he made them his own. And we're basically all involved in prayer, in penance, in fasting, and sackcloth if necessary. And I think it's probably close to necessity now. But you know, this might seem like uh, over, you know, overblown religious rhetoric. But I, I do think if we could see through the eyes of the prophets, we'd realize that no, here Scott is actually underfitting the importance and the necessity of this.
0: It, it, the importance and the necessity cannot be emphasized enough. I don't want to hold you much longer. I don't really want to hold you longer, but I, I do want to get to a couple of things in uh civilization requires true religion that chapter because this is all about true religion and the importance of it in in civilization not just society well that's there that's another conversation right there society but you rightly so say it's civilization itself that requires true religion you say the engine of true progress so i think a page or two before that you talked about use the term progress in the political world and progressive and all that, that aside, that's what you were referring to and you wrote about that. It's a relatively more modern use of the word progress. Uh, intentional goal, you, you say the idea of progress as an intentional goal of political society is a relatively new one. But a page or two later, you say, Dr. Han, the engine of true progress is not the political and economic regime, but the covenant oath. And I'm yet sitting here, yes, when I read that, And its fuel is not human ingenuity, but divine grace. How do we get our people back to that?
1: Well, you know, that's why this book is closely related to another one that came out about two years ago called The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order, because, you know, 41 years ago, Kimberly and I swore a covenant oath. The Latin term is sacramentum. The sacramentum of matrimony is what bound us to each other, but also to God. As you know, Fulton Sheen would say, it takes three to get married because God is not the glue. My vow is, my promise. God is the cement that makes the two one. And so if the, if the family is rooted in the covenant, then you can see how it's more than biological, it's more than sociological, it is at root theological, and you can see how if, you know, the family is the acorn of society, the civilization is the oak tree, which Israel represents as 12 tribes, hundreds of clans, thousands of households, but there you see a sacred civilization that was anything but utopia, obviously, Mm. but you also see this in the formation of Christendom after Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And why? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and he is with us to the end of the age. And so teach all people to basically observe whatsoever I've commanded you. I mean, that represents a tall order. And yet, the Roman Empire was this ancient culture of death, Somehow, against all odds, it was transformed into a civilization of justice and love, what we call Christendom. It was far from perfect. It was radically flawed, but it was immeasurably greater than the culture of death that you find in the Caesars. And so what we have is something that we can hope for, yet the hope that we have, the Christian hope, is not only difficult, but also, I mean, humanly speaking, it's impossible But again, we're reminded of what Jesus says, that with God, all things are possible. And so recognizing that the true religion has the power, the potential to bring about a just civilization and a a civilization of love and mercy and not just law and order. I mean, this is what we want to do, not for the fall crop, because that's not realistic, but it's not eternally realistic to only think in terms of, election cycles. We've got to plant the forest that will produce the trees that we won't see, but our grandkids and our great grandkids will. And whether it happens here or in Africa or Russia, that's up to God the Father, where he's going to cause his family to flourish. But the thing that we've got to do is stop pretending that we can't even desire Christian civilization, that we shouldn't, you know, we're not supposed to long for a Catholic culture. Of course we are. You know, Ultimately, I quote Pope Benedict, who I think is ultimately right in his uh, address to the French Academy several years ago. He points out that this amazing Christian civilization that historians call Christendom is the result of monasticism. But the monks weren't seeking to build Christian culture. They were seeking to glorify God through a life of obedience, faith, prayer, sacrifice, and especially the Mass, And so what happens is the fulfillment of what Christ promised. If you seek first the kingdom of heaven, these things will be added. Christian culture, Catholic society. But if you just seek the political goods that you want for yourself and your family, you're going to miss out on the kingdom of heaven, and you're going to also end up losing hold of these things that could be added. So first things first, and that is justice, the highest form of which is religion, the true religion, is expressed by the sacrifice of the mass, and this brings heaven to earth, it brings divine power to make the humanly impossible historically real in the past, but there's no reason to suppose that God doesn't want to do it again in the future, to show forth what Christ merited. There isn't a single soul on this planet Jesus doesn't point to and say, mine, I've purchased you. There isn't a single inch of land or any nation that Jesus doesn't point to and say, Father, I purchased them as well. And I think God the Father might want to show this forth in the future more than most of us want him to.
0: A lot of people can definitely, may not recognize themselves in that, but we are all, we're all ultimately human and we have our weaknesses. And yeah, maybe more than a lot of us want him to. I loved the, I loved the line and flagged it because I, I just have to get this in here. I'm very Trinitarian in, in my, my own prayer life. I just realized that years and years ago. And I love being Trinitarian, so I love your, your, uh, your this sentence. I fl- I uh, highlighted the Trinity holds everything together. The Trinity is the principle of the integrity of the universe. I I, I wonder it's one uh, my favorite
1: uh, lines in the book as well, Sheila. I I'm love glad it. You targeted that, yes.
0: And, and so I I thought, okay, how do we talk in today's language, or is that something we shouldn't even try to do to those who don't get it about our our excitement, our deep Uh, reverence for and also uh, appreciation of and gratitude for the Trinity?
1: Well, I think you've just put your finger on the one thing, you know, the Trinity, the incarnation and the folly of the cross, the Paschal Mystery. These are the things that, humanly speaking, are unbelievable. We've (laughs) got to go back and reassess the value of the gift of our faith that makes these sacred mysteries not just true, but real. All of this is reality and so we've got to assume that god wants to pour out the holy spirit upon those who will hear us those who will read us and so the fact is god is asking of us the impossible and so when it happens we can't take any credit we'll say not to us O lord not to us but to your name be the glory psalm 115 1 because he wants to do for us what he knows we can't do for ourselves and that's because he is a father who sent his son to give us the Holy Spirit of sonship so that as beloved children of God, we can wake up each day and say, we're what? We're sons and daughters of the creator of the universe? He's not just powerful. He is God the Father, all powerful. And this is what makes the the truths of our faith real. And it makes the reality something that will be more beautiful to us when we stop hiding them, assuming, well, there's just no way that reasonable people are ever going to recognize these and so it'll have to be through clever argumentation and by human devices that will reel them in you know and we have to bait the hook just simply with the things that we know they want when in fact God says no you do it that way you're going to end up taking all the credit seeking the glory no proclaim what Paul called the folly of the cross which is foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews but it is the power of God to save souls Jews and Greeks and Americans, Canadians, and all of the rest as well. And so I think this is what the new evangelization calls for, for us to put God to the test. We're going to proclaim what is humanly unbelievable, and without the Holy Spirit, we're toast. We'll be martyrs. But even then, oh Lord, you know, with the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe the blood of the martyrs will be the seed of the church in the next millennium. But I just really believe that we've got cause for alarm, as Ralph Martin points out in this amazing book A church in crisis, but we've got even more a basis for hope in moving forward that even the sufferings will redound to our glory.
0: Amen. There's a lot. And there's a lot of opportunity for suffering. A lot of people are suffering right now to, to in your final chapter to wrap um, the future of civilization depends on true religion. Dr. Han. you say to the extent that civilization depends on holiness. Therefore it depends on the church. It's up to us to respond to God's invitation to participate, to partake in his divine life through the church. That's an invitation, not just to be missionaries, but to invite people in, to invite them to, you know, first of all, to show people something that they want to. How, how do I get what you have? I guess that's one thing we really need to be doing out there in public life all the time. You, you through the St. Paul Center and through your prodigious writing are doing that all the time, but but it it is a civilization in crisis, and yet, uh, we have always had the answers. We've always had the oh keys, if you will, through Peter being given the keys. And we are that that was a missionary council, Vatican II, as you said, the uh, clergy sanctify the laity, and the laity sanctifies the world. So um, as you as you long ago said, Dr. Han, and I've never forgotten, never has it been as apt and necessary as it is right now, a reminder. No matter who is in the White House, Christ is on the throne. And yet this this kingdom he built up has got to be spread and right now for those future generations you say we have to now what rebuild as as francis was asked rebuild my church doesn't mean a, a, a structure with you know the bricks and mortar and all that it means we have to rebuild this entire planet uh starting with uh, our own families and our neighbors and as you say our states in our country there's so much in here it's so rich dr han it is right and just i love that it's from the mass itself why the future of civilization depends on true religion it is a compelling book an important one a necessary one thank you for being here to talk about it
1: oh you're welcome Sheila in closing let me just quote from page 102 in that same section you were drawing from you know that there is among many Catholics even those who want to who strive to be faithful something like an allergic reaction to the idea of sanctifying society I mean, not only is that impossible, highly unlikely, imprudent, inappropriate, you know, it's just, uh, we ought to banish the thought. Whereas I would banish the thought that we ought to banish the thought. If we simply allow ourselves to dream, to desire, to imagine, and then to talk with other people, we may set into motion forces that might take another generation or a century But believe me, our great grandkids will come to our graves and thank us for whatever we did to contribute to that kind of civilization of love.
0: That is so well put. This does end. And so many people have forgotten the end even our own people. It's too easy to get caught up in the now and the the stuff that's going on, and especially on social media and all that. We have to constantly, always, and everywhere keep in mind that it is right and just, it is truly right and just to to give the Lord honor and praise. And it is our duty and our, our, our salvation. And yet um, part of that mandate is that missionary mandate to do what this book points out for us. So it is an explanation. It is a background. It is a blueprint. It's all of the above because I'm an action person And I'm always itching to find what the action is that we need to be doing. And you have that here in your book. Thank you so much.
1: You are so welcome. And thank you for the invitation and for your hospitality in this conversation.
0: That's all for now, but these ideas have new urgency and also new vigor because people want and need to have purpose and be needed, especially for just and noble causes. Thanks for joining in. Please share the link and invite others to be part of the conversation next time here in the forum.